0: Well, we're going to, this morning, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at parts of this, and this is actually, this message this morning is piggybacking on last week, because I felt like after I was done and I thought about it and wrestled with it, you know, there's some more that we could say about the sovereignty of God that I think would be helpful for us to understand, and and so I dove in once again, and I feel like there's... As you'll see as we go through this, there's some aspects to this that are difficult because, uh, because when you co- go to study God, he's deep. He's beyond comprehension. And so anytime you go in and you're studying and you're reading and you ask one more question or one more question, eventually you're on the skinny branches and you know that it's, it's not too safe out there and so you better venture back. And so, as we do this this morning, once again, I, I realize that not every question is ever going to be answered, but hopefully we come away understanding God and His ways better this morning. So let's, let's, let's pray and ask God to really be merciful to us. Father, we love You, we love Your Word, we love the fact that we can come together and gather as Your people in Your presence hear from you, sing your praises, seek you, delight in you, feast on you, and in you find life, find hope, find peace, find joy, find everything our soul needs. And this morning as we open your word, we look to you, and, and oh Lord, we want you to teach us. Use me as your servant, work through me, use my mouth, my mind. Possess me in a way that the people can hear from you. And may I get out of the way, and may they hear Jesus. For Lord, we ask this this morning because we are in Jesus, and because you delight to hear our prayers in Him. Amen. Well, as we get started here and you're in Ephesians chapter one, I want to begin by saying that God's sovereignty over all things ensures our salvation. It's because God is sovereign and He's sovereign over all things that anybody at all is saved. Without Him being sovereign, without Him acting sovereignly, there is no salvation. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Clearly, this text makes it obvious that God sovereignly acted, on our behalf, so that we would possess the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. He says that He chose us before the foundation of the world, if you look at verse 4. So the question is, when did He choose us? Well, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world ever existed, God sovereignly acted, and He did something. He chose us, which is amazing. And he chose us that we should become something, chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And it says in love, beginning of verse five, in love he, he did what? He predestined us. He predestined us for adoption to himself. So he predestined that we'd be adopted, adopted to him through Jesus. We can actually go down in verse 11 of this particular chapter, and there you'll also see, see that he says that we've obtained an inheritance by him who predestined us. So he chose us. He predestined us. And Paul in this section is really emphasizing this fact. And the point that Paul is getting at here is actually summarized in really well in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. He says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on god who shows mercy and in the context there what's he referring to those he shows mercy to those whom he loves it's dependent upon him he must be the the initial cause he's the actor he must sovereignly act whereas jesus said in in john 665 i told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father so jesus tells the crowd say listen it's like me saying here listen folks not one of you can come to jesus unless it's granted to you by the father and you we can go on and on and there's all kinds of scriptures that speak of this they speak of the, that demonstrate the same thing that god sovereignly he acts he has to he has to be the initiator in it all <clears throat> Now, having said that, unless we're careful to understand the context with which this is being said, within which this is being said, it's easy to misrepresent the sovereignty of God in salvation like this. Because one of the things I can't stand is when people represent this doctrine and make God out to be like some kind of monster who's just like, he's choosing, electing, and almost as if he's throwing some people into hell and, and oh yeah, these ones go into heaven. And, and actually I've listened to a fair amount of this stuff and I've seen some people do that. The God, the God they're, they're presenting is ugly. And it's just not correct. Because here's some, here's some context that we have to understand this within. And the one is that our condition outside of Jesus. We have to understand, one, our condition outside of Jesus. Two, God's heart towards the lost. And three, God's very nature that governs all things and all decisions. If we don't understand these three things, when we're talking about God's sovereign choosing, God's sovereignly electing and determining those who be saved, we get very uh, misguided in this whole doctrine. So first of all, to understand our condition, look over at chapter 2 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about our condition before God, and then it starts to become clear why God must sovereignly act, why he must choose. Look at Ephesians 2 beginning at verse 1. And you were dead. And you were dead in trespasses, in sins. And then if you look down at verse, and then he goes on to talk about this condition of being trespasses and sins, and then down in verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And ra- he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here's the picture. Here's the condition. It isn't like we are all on life rafts floating around the sea of life, and then some people are calling out to God, God, save me. God, save me. If you any image like that at all is completely wrong. Dump the life rafts, everyone dies, goes down to the bottom of the sea, and they're all dead on the bottom. Dead, it says. Dead. Not half alive. Dead. You get it? Dead. No life. Dead. So, the thing is, God must act. Why? What's the precondition? Well, the problem is we're all dead. It's like Ezekiel who's who's proclaiming before the, the valley of dead, dry bones. That's what preaching is like. And if unless God sovereignly acts, there's no salvation. Nobody is saved. Not one person. We're dead, lifeless corpses on the bottom of the sea, and so God in his mercy must miraculously make us alive together with Christ. But it isn't that we're just simply dead. He says we're dead in a certain kind of way. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And if you go back up in Ephesians 2, and and you in beginning at verse 2 and following, you'll see how he describes the deadness. He says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So as you can clearly see, we're we are we're plenty alive in one sense. We're plenty alive to sin. We're dead in that sin, dead in the trespasses and sins, but we're still living and breathing. Our deadness is in relationship to God. We are completely dead to him. His life is not in us. We are on the bottom of the sea, so to speak. But yet at the same time, we're in this this deadness. We're still alive, living. And as a result, what do we do? Those who are outside of Jesus, those who are outside of Christ, who are dead in sins, they follow the course of the world, it says. So they follow after the ways of the world. He also says that they follow the philosophies of Satan. We follow, and He says that we follow the desires of our flesh, and we carry out the desires of our body, he says. So we're just wanting and lusting and desiring. He says, so okay, if you want to see what a person who is dead looks like, they're completely dead, is that they are people who follow after the world, the philosophies of Satan, follow after the flesh, and follow after the desires of their body. If you watch them, that's how they conduct themselves. That's how they walk. Now, the thing we have to understand about salvation is that it is not calling good people who simply need to make a personal decision. Salvation is an act of calling the haters, haters of God, dislikers of God, rejecters of God, deniers of God, who are dead to Him. Completely dead. Therefore, given their condition, if, if they are to be saved, if they're to be saved at all, what, what, God must do something. He must act. He must determine, he must choose, has to, because by the Spirit, he must make them alive again. He must, by the Spirit, unite them to Christ so that they're raised with Christ to newness of life and seated with him in the heavenlies. Because apart from being joined and united to Christ Jesus, there's no life again. You you come back to life because you're, you're united to Christ. And there's lots I could say about life. You've heard me say it before. Talk about how, like, life and death in the Bible isn't just about being walking around and then being in the grave. Those still aren't just the two states of life and death. There's life and death in reference to our spiritual condition as well. And I've I've talked at length about that. So, so one of the things is that when it comes to this whole issue, if we don't understand the condition of man and we just talk about the sovereignty of God, it can be completely misunderstood. You have to understand the condition, and it's bad. You're dead. Right? The second thing I think we need to really understand in this context is that we have to understand God's heart toward the lost. And I've I've went over this as well several times, but I'm just going to remind us all that God truly does have a concern for the lost. First Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So if we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God and his choosing and his predestining and his electing, you have to do that with the understanding that God does have a desire for all last, a concern. He desires that all come to repentance, all be saved. But he knows that unless he has to do the acting, otherwise it can't happen. Second Peter three nine says that the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that to any that, that any perish, but that all come to repentance. Another insightful passage is Ezekiel thirty three eleven, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. All of these passages, and there's more. We could look at others. They reveal to us the heart of God toward lost sinners who reject him. And in some cases, hate him. In some cases, despise him. In some cases, completely blaspheme him. This is Those are those people, every single person in this world born into Adam is born in a condition that we just looked at. And they're haters of God. They turn from God. They, they pursue their own thing. They do their own thing. They don't have any interest in God. And it's those people, it says, that if we understand, we understand their condition, we also understand God's, God's heart towards them is this, that he loves them. He, he desires that, he, that they would all turn. But they reject him. They turn from him, they ignore him, they blaspheme him, they deny him, etc., etc. But they never turn to him. Now, this is, that's important to understand, God's heart in all this. It's important to understand the condition, but it's also important to understand the very fundamental nature of God by which God makes his decisions and does things. First John teaches us that God is love, right? By his very nature, God is love. And when the Spirit of God fills the soul, the fruit that comes out of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22 and following, is what? Is love, joy, peace... Patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This, so the nature of God comes and fills the soul. The Spirit of God, who is God, fills it, and it says, if, when the Spirit is there, this is the fruit that comes out of that life. And why is that the fruit? Because this is the very nature of God. So God is. And this is what comes out. So if you want to who is God? Well, God is love. And when God manifests Himself, when it when it's exposed, what do we see? We see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And, and and there's no better picture of this than Jesus. Jesus is the expressed image of the invisible God. He is the exact image. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. What would what would God do if he lived on earth? Look at Jesus. And who do we see? The most loving, self-sacrificing man who ever lived. He knew, he knew who to heal and who to bind up and who to tenderly forgive. And you know, it's it just, it's amazing because he's out amongst sinners and he's loving on them. And then the religious, arrogant, proud elite of the, of the society, he was not afraid in the slightest to let them have it. And 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 so when you see this this, this character, you see one who, who's the epitome of what love and goodness and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control is all about. It's the manifestation of it. So we have to think about when God, we think of God sovereignly acting, sovereignly choosing. We don't think of a God with a, a scowl on his face and an angry temper and and all these lousy sinners i just can't wait to zap them in a, you know i'm going to throw this this bunch in hell and yeah i might save this these few and you're lucky if i got you, you know and and, that, and we got to be really careful this is why we're treading on holy ground we're trying to we're trying to present the god as he god of the bible as he's re, as he's revealed himself to us in jesus So, you gotta be careful how you talk about these things, and that's something else I wanna say. You know, I've, I've been around to several reformed people who like to run to Romans chapter 9 and Ephesians 1 and, and get their favorite passages and just, and just say, hey, look at this, look at this. And, and beat people up with it and completely misrepresent it and tear it right out of context. You know, it's said very little. And when Paul usually does bring it up, he's bringing it in one or two cases. In Ephesians 1, he wants to encourage them to see that how much they've been loved by God. And in Romans 9, he's smacking around his own people, the, the Jews, because they're arrogant and proud about the fact that they're born of Abraham. And he says, well, you think you're born of Abraham? So is Jacob and Esau. I got one for you. And so he goes through that whole scenario with Jacob and Esau, and he's doing it to smack around his arrogant, proud brothers, the Jews, because they think because of who they're born to, they're necessarily saved. And so we have to understand the context. It's, it's absolutely fundamental in this discussion, because this, the moment I talk about God electing, predestining, choosing those whom he would save, those who are his... It, it can seem like the question comes, what's the next question? Why doesn't he save everybody? It's a good question, isn't it? Okay, because, okay, Dean, I follow the argument. I know, that, I know who we are. I know that we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're apart from Christ. There's no life. God must act. He has to. I know God's heart towards the lost. I know who he is fundamentally in his nature. So the question is, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he, by his sovereign act, choose everybody, every single person? And I just want—I'm here to say that that is a—that's a valid question. It's a good question, and there are plenty of people who've actually done a really good job explaining and articulating this, especially when you get into the aspects of showing that this is, this is a highly complex thing going on, because what God is doing in all of it is he's revealing things that our our brains can't really get around, because on the one hand, he has to suffer, he has to suffer, and show himself suffering so that we can even know that our God is a God who's willing to suffer. You He could tell you that he suffers, that he's willing to suffer, and I'm willing to suffer for a long, long time. And I'm willing to suffer out of love, out of, out of love, not out of like gleeful joy. Oh, it's so great when, you know, let's cast another one into hell. You know, any idea of that is just complete misrepresentation of God. Actually, I think that it grieves God, because if we know his fundamental nature, and when he he makes decisions to not save people, it grieves him, but it's necessary on so many levels. Great theologians have walked through this carefully, and you can go, and if if you're interested in really researching this, you can see how there's multi-layers here that uh, of things that happen as a result of it. Like one is even for our sakes those who are being saved we see and understand and know the grace of god in ways that in ways that'll take eternity to comprehend because you know what'll happen whenever we see someone else who doesn't receive what we received it humbles your heart because it's like we were the same and i and he chose me he loved me and then he didn't him and then when i look at that my my heart is overwhelmed and i feel like i won the biggest lottery in the universe and like why me oh god why me i was i'm worse than that guy i i there's there's 10 or 20 of them 100 of them and i'm way worse than all of them so there's there's that aspect there's so many layers there's a layer of us seeing and understanding the very nature and character of God on so many levels. So there's answers to it, but it's complex and it, and it's very deep. So that there's, just know that it's okay to have the questions. It's okay to ask them, but just don't leave them open-ended. search, search them out, pursue them, go after them. There's plenty of good material on this, but I have to move on. You know, one of the things we have to understand in all of this discussion about God's sovereignty is that God's sovereignty Does not take away man's responsibility. When we read throughout Scripture, one thing is clear man is called to act, he is called to believe. He is called to obey, and he's responsible for that. So man is responsible because man, God, God doesn't, doesn't manipulate men. He allows men to do their thing, <laughs> and he's going to hold them accountable for their thing. They're responsible. It never in one way takes away man's responsibility so he could say, well, it's not me, it's God doing everything. Man must repent, man must believe, man must obey, man must trust. And God will hold him accountable for this. Just listen to some of these passages that I'm going to read, and you'll see that this is clearly the case. And God's sovereign rule doesn't interrupt man's responsible actions. Whatever you do, in Colossians 3, chapter 3, 23-24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. So you're to work. Work work is unto the Lord, and as you do that, God will hold you responsible for that, and as He, he sees you're faithful in it, He'll reward that. Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 6.3, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry knowing he's thinking, he, he understands, I'm not going to put an obstacle in someone's way because I know that I'll be held accountable. I'm responsible for my ministry, and I don't want to be at fault in my ministry because at the end, I don't want there to be wood, hay, and stubble and burns up, and I, I have very next to little reward. I want my ministry because I'm responsible for my ministry to be in the Lord and of the Lord and rewarded by Him. Deuteronomy 28.15 but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe all to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today, that all, then all the curses will come upon you and overtake you. So, so here's the issue that, that God's going to hold everybody accountable to obey His His commands, to obey His word, to obey to obey what He has said, and then He's going to hold them accountable to it or we have Romans 14:10 through 4 uh 10 and 12 for we know for we all stand before the judgment seat of God for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God so that each of us will give an account for of himself to God now for some people it's a judgment hello hey mom <laughs> where's the mayonnaise? <laughs> so we have to understand that everyone is going to be accountable for what they 're saying some some as they 're in a judgment will be it 'll be a determination of life, eternal life, or eternal death for others it 'll even be a judgment of their works for reward so those even though all of us who are in Christ and are go before the lord and we 're judged we'll, we will be judged in christ, so yeah you 're saved, but some as if through fire. <laughs> You barely made it, boy. You're like your backside's black, and 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 others are going to be well rewarded. I mean, Paul talks about this in Corinthians about and the judgment. It'll all be burned up if it's wood, hay, and stubble. Psh, you know, only the true things done in faith in Christ will remain. So we are responsible to act, and we'll be held accountable for that. Judgment is real, and our responsibility is real. It never, God's sovereignty never erases man's respons- responsibility. In fact, if we misunderstand our role and responsibility and we misunderstand God's sovereignty, and this often is what happens. Oh, God is sovereign. He determines all things. And it really creates in a lot of people total inactivity. Why pray? Why act? It doesn't matter if I act or not. God will do his thing, right? don't ever think like that. And if you want to know just a great example of why you shouldn't think like that, turn to Matthew chapter 25, and we'll read the story that Jesus gave about the talents. Matthew 25, it begins at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave his five talents, to another two, to another one, to each one according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five more talents. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received one talent went and dug it in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he he who also had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, this is what's yours. But his master said to him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested the money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take that talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Ouch. Now that's what happens to a Calvinist who doesn't understand his responsibility before God. I remember reading that, thinking, ooh, I know a lot of people like this. What's the point? Why bother? God's sovereign, he does what he wants. And I've seen a lot of people come to understand the sovereignty of God and watch their prayer life dip as if it doesn't matter much. Well, they used to be, a, have evangelistic fervor and going out and seeking and crying out and telling everybody. It was like, oh, God's sovereign. He chooses people. They can't even come to him. What's, what's the, what's the sense? Ooh, scary. You don't understand. We are responsible in our actions and, and God will hold us responsible for them. And his sovereignty never negates our responsibility ever. And our, and our responsibility is to do what he's called us to do and let him do what he's doing. Not judge from that how much effort we should give to something. I once heard John Piper say, you know, if you're a true Calvinist, you would actually evangelize even more and more thoroughly because you know it's going to be effective. God said he's going to save the nations and you know he's actually going to do it. It's not, I'm not, it's not up to man. I know God's going to do it. So it should actually make you even more of an evangelist. Same with prayer. You know God hears you. You know God loves you. You know God's. uh, you're in Christ Jesus. You know that he answers prayer, and you know that he's sovereign. It should make you pray even more. But we pervert, and we twist, and we misunderstand this doctrine of sovereignty, and then we get off the rails, and I'm afraid we need to read this passage every now and then to remind ourselves that if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you better be careful that it never takes away man's responsibility before God. And so, I think when it comes to the, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, we have to understand that both are absolutely true. But we also, here's something else we have to understand that even, so man is, man is responsible, responsible for the things he says, the things he does, the choices he makes. He's fully responsible before God. And, his, and the things that he does have an impact, and the things he says have an impact, and the things we do are, are doing things in the world. But we have to understand that God's sovereignty always, no matter, even though you're responsible, and even though you're a free-acting agent, and you're doing your things, and God is, and the things that you're doing are having an effect, God's sovereignty always trumps, always trumps man's will. We can never think that, oh no, what if... Oh no, like uh, somehow uh, this or this could happen. And we're not sure what could happen and anything could happen. It's just a really, we, we're not sure because if this person does this and I do this and this person does that and I do that, then this will happen and this will happen. We love to do this. We love to figure everything out. Like, and, and the more we figure things out, the more we feel like we have control. It's like, it's a feeling of, and then, and then when we really have it all figured out, it's like, yeah, we, it's like, yeah, we're, we're on top of it. We rule it. We're sovereign now all of a sudden. I'm in charge because I got it all figured out. And that's how I like it. I like it having it figured out because when it's figured out, things feel good. I feel in control. And when you feel in control, ah, I love control because control puts me in charge. And as long as, as long as Dean's in charge, life is good. Except God doesn't think so, because there's only one in charge. He's the sovereign, we're the servant. And what we have to learn to do is be okay with the sovereign. And be okay being the servant. And be good with whatever you bring my way, O Lord. You're good, and this is good, because you brought it my way that takes a long time it doesn't that take a long time to you know it's like god's just constantly isn't he is that the lesson he's working in our lives he just cuts our legs out takes away things brings circumstances and situations god if you're in control why would you ever do this this is crazy and then those situations those circumstances they overwhelm us i can't i can't figure it out I can't get in control of this. And, I can, and if I can't get in control and I don't know what's going to happen, I've got to know what's going to happen. Because not knowing what's going to happen, well, who can live like that? I don't want to live like that. I want to know what's going to happen. God says, no. I'm the sovereign, you're the servant. Proverbs 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So the sovereign even governs tongues in what we say. Proverbs sixteen nine says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You know, both of these passages seem to indicate you could you could press this far enough you could say, Look at every word and every step is determined by the Lord. But that's that's not the intention of these passages. The point of these, these, these proverbial statements is ultimately just to understand this. The Lord's will prevails in the world, not yours. This, he's the sovereign, not you. So the principle, the point is to realize that you cannot, no matter what you plan, no matter what you determine, no matter what, the sovereign governs and rules. He will decide. You can do all the planning you want. You can do all the preparing you want. And if it doesn't unfold the way God wants, he could cut the legs out from underneath it. Have you ever had your legs cut out? Have you ever had dreams smashed? Have you ever had your ideals wrecked? Well, of course. If you're a Christian, you say, oh yeah, <laughs> welcome to my life. That's because we constantly have to learn who is the sovereign and who is the servant we want to make god our servant our genie james 4:13 through 16 says come now you who say tomorrow uh, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit yet you do not know that tomorrow what tomorrow will bring what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then whoosh, vanishes instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, as it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. wow, he calls it evil, evil to say, yeah we're going to do this and we're going to do that and make plans it's all going to be great and we'll do this and we'll do that now we also know that we', we are to make plans <laughs> we are to we are to we are to organize we're to plan we're to look ahead, we're to do all these things, but then we we know there's a sovereign who's over all things. We say, Lord, I submit these to you and to your hand. Your will be done because I know there's, there's not much I can do about it. We can never thwart the sovereign's will. But ultimately, and ultimately, his God's will stands. You know, I, have, I heard a story of a man who tried to kill himself by putting a gun in his mouth. And he has a plan. Here's a man with a plan to end his life. Sticks the gun in his mouth. Click. What the heck? doesn't work. What's wrong with this thing? He shoots it. Boom. Wow, it works. Click. What? He kept doing this until he ran out of bullets. I've, and I've heard of several stories like this. Man makes his plan, but the sovereign determines <laughs> the outcome. There's a sovereign who governs all things, who's over all things. You know, you can even think about our mouth, things we speak. I get to experience this on a regular basis because there's times I'm up here preaching and I feel like a man possessed. It's like having a conversation with myself. Where's this coming from? <laughs> it's like God, God's taking over. and And literally... We can make plans, and this is what I do. I should show you my notes. I've made my plans. I've prepared. I've went over it. I'm getting ready for it. I'm prayerfully doing it. But when God takes over and he decides there's something he wants me to say, well, guess what? It gets said. And I know you guys have probably experienced this in, in conversations with people where all of a sudden... You're saying things and God's giving you wisdom and understanding and, and words and, and you think, where is this coming from? Well, it's from God. Man plans his way, but God determines. But God, the answer of the tongue, as it says, is of the Lord. The sovereign overrides man's will constantly. We make our plans. We do our things. We are responsible. We we actually, we lay our hands to the plow. He gives us five talents. We go out and make five more. He gives us two. We can go out and make five more. We can invest. We can work. We do our stuff. God, under his sovereign decree, he decrees covenantally the world, and he's governing all things like this great and awesome king. Your work is accomplishing and doing things, and the sovereign will make sure that his ultimate plans gets accomplished through our work. You know, he's like a king, but he has this ability to work in every single person's heart and 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 work in the molecules and the atoms. He can tell them to jump, leap, go sideways, stop, you know, whip around, do whatever they want. If he speaks, it happens. He's the sovereign. So here's the thing in all of this that I want us to go away with. Understanding the sovereignty of God should accomplish a couple things. If you really get and understand the sovereignty of God and you come to know him as the sovereign one, you learn to submit to Him in all things. And oh, Lord God, you, Yours is the kingdom, Yours is the power, Yours is the glory. You are the one over all things. It's Your will that governs all things. It's Your will that I want. So we begin to see that it's His will, not ours. We're servants. He's the Lord. And we 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 also can learn to relax can learn to submit, can learn to trust, can learn to say, you know what, it's going to be all right. You can't do that unless your God is sovereign. You, you, You can't have peace. You can't have rest. You cannot... Go before him and give him your cares and concerns and everything and say, Lord, I know you will take care of it all. And I have certainty of this because of who you are. You, your God has to be sovereign in order for you to do that. And now that I want us to understand that because your God is sovereign, because he, he decrees all things and he, and he chooses and he elects and he elects and all these things, never ever let his sovereignty be a, an excuse for your inactivity. Ever. As soon as you go there, you think, this is wrong. I'm twisting and perverting sovereignty. You're responsible. Your work matters. Do your work as unto the Lord. Know that he's sovereign. He's the king. And under him as his servant, you're going to work, and you're going to labor, and you're going to strive, and you're going to be exhausted at the end of the night, knowing, trusting that he will take my labors, and he will use them for his great purposes, that's doing your work as under the Lord and not, a, like, when you're building your own kingdom, you know, because he, he frustrates you. He makes you upset. And you're really angry because he starts messing with it. And then he realized, ah, got you, Dean. I realized it was all about you and your kingdom, wasn't it? Ultimately. Yeah, and I was doing all this in the name of the Lord. But really in my heart, he has a way of showing that in my heart, it was always, it was just for Dean's kingdom. So he exposes and he reveals and he shows He's he's a good sovereign. And then I, I see my own heart. I see that, that my, my lust and desire to be in charge, to be in control, to run things my way and to, to be on top. But no, no. I have to learn to be a submissive servant in everything I do and labor as unto the Lord. And that takes a lifetime, a lifetime of repenting. A lifetime of knowing my God and seeking Him. A lifetime of understanding His sovereign reign and myself as a servant and continually being broken and humbled under Him so that I want to be at the end of my days. I can, He can bring anything my way and I can trust Him. He's my sovereign. Amen. Father, you are our God. You're awesome. You're glorious. You're sovereign over all things. It's you who decree, you who determines, you who governs all things. You're in charge, O oh Lord. You're in charge of me. You're in charge of us and every soul here. You're the Lord. We are your servants. Oh Lord, I pray for these people here this morning that they would submit their hearts to you. They would give up all things, stop seeking to control, stop shirking responsibility, and just would deliver it all up to you. Submitting to you, surrendering to you, because you are good, awesome, holy, sovereign over all things. Blessed be your name forever and ever, O oh Lord. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.